All right, good afternoon. My name is uh, Tori Sinai, and I am moderating the uh, Surfacing Dark Knowledge, How Blockchain Technology Enhances Academic Publishing panel. Um, we are going to discuss how blockchain impacts research and academic publishing for the next 30 minutes. And so let's jump right in. Why don't we open with um, a question for our panelists. With peer review and the value of it legitimizing science, would you agree or disagree with that statement? Why or why not? Whether or not peer review. Peer review legitimizes, yes, science. Um, you know, uh, harking back to the, the the previous talk, I think uh, you know I like the quote that, that peer review is the you know the the worst thing we have except for all the others is a gold standard. I think that that's um, very true because um, for years it has stood as the gold standard and gives us. Um, as scientists, as researchers, a way of clearing a bar of some sort of overview that doesn't occur in most of the other communications in our daily life. Um, you, we, we, we assume that that happens um, in newspaper rooms, but, but we know for a fact it doesn't. So to have an anonymized system that allows for experts in a very rarefied field to be able to review what has been done is at least some barrier to entry, some bar that has to be cleared that gives us a lower level of um, irreproducible science than we would have otherwise. So I don't think it, it legitimizes every piece of science, but it, it legitimizes the enterprise to a very high degree. That said, I think we can do better. Okay, and a follow-up question in that case, your views of open versus closed peer review. Courtney, I'll get to you. Um, no, I'm happy to. No, Sean. Oh. Um, Open versus closed, I, I think any time you can introduce transparency into a system, you're going to have better behavior, um, but it comes with challenges, and so I think it's a goal to reach for, but it doesn't necessarily um, happen instantaneously, especially, especially if um, you are looking to open um, both sides of it, so that you've got um, the reviewers who could face, you know, the backlash that that, that can happen with uh, um, people not liking what the review looked like. So I think security, or um, maybe not physical security, but uh, some sort of um, personal security or identity is useful. But having an audibility factor, having some sort of accountability for both sides, um, is is definitely a, a step in the right direction. Courtney. Look, I, I think it can cut both ways, but I don't think 100% open is necessarily going to work in all cases um, for some of the reasons, Sean, that you mentioned. But if you're a junior researcher, junior, you know, associate professor being asked to review the leading, you know, leading person in the field's paper, you know, you aren't going to be too critical on that if it's an open process because that, you, you know, if you're critical, even if that's your point of view, you're not going to put that out there. It's going to kill your career. Um, and so there are, you know, I, I look at, with a little bit of a skeptical eye towards the everything's got to be open and it's got to be completely transparent because I don't think that works in all cases. I think there may be some examples of where it could work, uh, but yeah, I don't think it's the panacea that a lot of the open peer review, you know, kind of uh, part of the part of the communication, you know, 
people are after. I just don't think it's the, you know, it's going to work in all cases. We've, um, it, as you said, it cuts both ways. At uh, On both blockchain and healthcare today and telehealth and medicine today, we've looked at open peer review. And on one of the journals, um, because of ethics committees and legal, there is um, very little chance we can turn a paper around in any reasonable period of time um, if, in fact, we go open. So we have decided to stay closed on the blockchain and healthcare uh, today side, for example, on that journal. On telehealth and medicine today, we are um, partnering with yet another company. Um, and this company, um, we are looking at going open peer review with. So it, it all depends. As you said, it does cut both ways. Um, but again, if we want to push um, scholarly journalism um, and and peer review in a um, an era of uh, au courant, if you will, <laughs> then these are things that we need to really assess and, and objectively so. Again, on the blockchain side, it's not possible because of these, um, uh, you know, reviews and committees and legal and so on and so forth. Um, but on the telehealth side, it is. So it all depends. We'll, we'll yeah. see. Okay, may I um, add one follow-up to that? Yeah. That I, I wonder if, and you know, not a today type of thing, but I wonder if the technology itself affords us a new opportunity to look at how that is done and maybe not open review but maybe auditable review when and where there's a problem and setting up some sort of um, distributed system um, where you've got um, tokenized identity of the reviewers themselves that that the review itself becomes part of the blockchain record may serve as a third way. So um, yes and yes and I'm glad you bring that up because we are in fact looking at exactly that for the telehealth journal. Awesome. So you know entering a completely different um, kind of like Star Trek for uh, scholarly publishing um, and it's in beta but we're all aboard and we want to push it forward. So let's let's see what happens. There are some other very 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 reputable um, journal publishers that are looking at and will likely be experimenting with the same. So again, it's all uh, change and transformation and technology, and um, this is where we are heading and and want to assist heading. Well, and I think being able to do some proofs of concept on these things is great. And I think that, you know, a little bit of the buzz around the technology also allows a little of that exper experimentation that might not otherwise come to light uh, in kind of the legacy system. So I think from that perspective, it's great. Yeah. Um, I think my view is more data, more transparency, more openness around a lot of the scholarly communication space. It, it, for us and for me is kind of the foundation. What does that lead to as it relates to peer review mm -hmm. is, well, if, if you can see more stuff, evaluate more stuff, you have a, a linked chain of more things, that's gotta be helpful. Um, whether or not you experiment with single, double, or triple blinded peer review, you know, let, the, let some of those disciplines and communities right. experiment with some of those yeah. and see what might work. Yeah. Um, so now you mentioned the word transparency. Let's take that into our uh, next question. Um, what is dark knowledge and why do we care to mine it? 
Well, we, we have used the term dark knowledge because um, is that other is that other slide somewhere? I, you know something. Let me. I don't. Well, we had one, which is in the scholarly communications process, which you know, in, in the way I look at this as a funnel that it starts with people doing a lot of research, producing a lot of data, a lot of information, data sets, posters, presentations, images, whatever the case may be, and then it basically gets winnowed down to the form factor of a manuscript. And so, and then everybody focuses on that manuscript, which then goes through a peer review process. We talked about that in the previous panel. Uh, you know, and then it gets published or it doesn't get published. Um, and then it ultimately gets indexed or it doesn't get indexed depending on what journal it's in. I'm, and so, you know, there's this very long process to, to put out some knowledge, but along the way you're carving off all kinds of good stuff that, it, and so that's the term we've just used is that just gets lost to dark knowledge because it doesn't get indexed by any of the commercial indexers. You can't ever find it. Um, and, there's, and there's a lot of stuff that could be very valuable there. So, you know, we were trying to come at it from a way which is, well, how do you, how could you surface some of this dark knowledge, you know, build an index that includes all these things that are all linked together in a way so that they can be found, they could be used, they could be cited, you could build a reputation, but ultimately you're building this much bigger corpus of knowledge that's surfacing all this stuff that sits on laptops all over the world today. Anyway, that's, that's, that's how I think about answering that question, Tori, so. Sean? Um, well, I, I, I've just learned the term dark knowledge, Courtney and, and, and Tori and I were talking on the phone and, and you introduced me to it and I immediately loved it and on a couple different levels. I wore my Cthulhu tie today because we are surfacing dark knowledge. I didn't know what was going to happen here. But I, um, I, I, I think, and I'll, I'll, I'll be a little bit provocative here, um, having been in the federal government and having looked at it from the academic side, that it's, uh, it's in all the government people are in the other room, but it's borderline waste, fraud, and abuse, how much government funded research never sees the light of day. And I think that, um, and you and I have talked about the, 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 the need to get negative findings there, but I think a lot of what you described even yeah. gets lost before you get to those negative yeah, findings. Yeah, I mean, I agree, negative findings is a great mm -hmm. case point of that. If it doesn't get, if it's negative, it doesn't get published, so then it just goes poof. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and finding ways to, to surface those, you know, those nuggets of already found and processed knowledge and negative findings that just can't make their way into, into journals is it, it would be a huge surfacing of, of some pieces, but I think there's many more layers of, of data that gets lost because we don't have a, um, a good capture of everything because it sits on you know, a grad student's computer or this, this server at this um, university and finding a way to utilize the technology of blockchain in healthcare and in health research, I think is, it has tremendous value and tremendous value proposition to exploring with the, the, that technology in the publishing world. So can you describe a linked chain of work supporting peer review and manuscript development? What would some of the components of that be? and or outputs. Yes, so certainly the way I look at it is if you are a researcher and you are, as you go, you are submitting, you know, it can be a hash, 
that it just basically gets tracked along and it's going to point. I mean, obviously, it's not storing. I mean, we're not going to store a bunch of stuff on the blockchain because it's not that type of technology. But um, if you can, let's say you get an early data set, you hash that thing, you, you establish the hash, you timestamp it, it becomes yours. You start to manage your IP a little bit along the way. We know from researchers that's one of the fears is losing control of their IP, but you provide some IP management. Um, and then if should you choose to want to make that public, it can be indexed immediately, but it's also at the same time you're linking it to everything else you put along. So an early data set, you go to a conference and you post a presentation or a poster, you can do those, you can put those things out there in much the same way. You're building this web of knowledge, uh, sorry, trademark Clarivate, um, that's not what I meant, um, but, uh, but you're building this web of this information as you're building a research project along the way. Now, ultimately, it, within the publishing process, you do need a manuscript. So you're going to submit a manuscript, but at the same time, and you know this is part of the you know part of what we're testing out actually with blockchain and healthcare today, and a couple of publishing proofs of concept is okay. Let's submit this kind of more chain this this almost a longitudinal record of research at the same time as you do a, as a manuscript. Now, when when an editorial board and a peer review want to look at it, what do they have? They've got this whole record of things. You want to dig into a data set, or you want to see if something's been p-hacked along the way, or you want to, you know, you're you're you're, pro, you're prodding and you're testing. You now have this much more comprehensive set of work. But the researcher, okay, so that's the that's getting that out from the publisher's perspective. But the researcher has now also had the opportunity, in our view, to build reputation in real time along the way, because any of those things that are made public and could be found and used can also be cited. Um, because the system that we're, you know, that we're working on is to allow that citation, uh, kind of reputational engine, to be part of the motivation to share along the way, not only to substantiate a, a better piece of work. Anyway, that was a little bit long. So when we or we hear a lot about abbreviating time to market. How can this help scholars, uh, researchers, and companies, um, if at all? And the ultimate beneficiary, again, I always get back to the patient, um, as our focus is strictly health-oriented. So now, in terms of abbreviating time to market, back to that concept, um, some pros or cons even, are there? Um, I, well, I think the, 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 the pro is if you're improve, if research is improving outcomes, the faster you can improve outcomes, the, the better it is to speed that process up. I think it, where you get a con is if you speed it up in ways that decrease the safety or decrease the quality, and you have to, you have to avoid that. But I think um, you know, looking at the sort of bench to bedside, 17 years on average, which is usually the term used, um, a lot of that time is caught up in administrative processes. And you know, part of that is in, in an iterative cycle, um, publishing, and then that going back into the body of literature, being read and being built upon by researchers. Um, any shouldn't use the term delay, but any 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 pause in that cycle because of extended periods of review cause a delay in the overall movement forward of the outcome improvement of the research itself. And so, by speeding up research, you speed up that whole bed to bench to bedside process. Yes, yeah, spinning the velocity of this research up obviously has benefit. I mean, it's it's hard to argue unless there's a real demonstrative 
quality issue or something, but speeding the velocity of research can only be a good thing in my view. But you know, even, even at the, a very basic level, you know, life science companies are very interested in early signal detection that comes out of any, you know, early studies or things that they pick up on posters or presentations, um, because that helps them s speed up, you know, some of what they're looking at. But, the, you know, so that's just an example of, a, of if you're sharing stuff along the way, you're also, you have the ability for collaborators to come in and pop into stuff that, you know, might be interesting. Because everybody knows a published article is not today's science. A published article is science from, you know, a minimum two years ago. Um, and sometimes it's more than that because sometimes some of these studies, longitudinal studies, sometimes take a lot longer. But if you're able to get that information out faster in a way that's also, you know, linked together and building, you know, building towards some of this research, it, it can only help. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's certainly my view. Not that there aren't some potential downsides, but uh, my view is the upside far outweighs any of those. And, and just to add one one other point, I think you know, uh, on, on not quite the flip side, but a, but a but a corollary to that is the faster you can get bad science out of the system, the better off you're going to be. You mentioned you mentioned sure. the retractions from from the Harvard cardiology studies that that spanned 15 years, yeah. and so some of these are are foundational for where other funds have gone, or foundational for other research that has gone on. And if you've got a a linked system, a chain link system through the research to the publications, finding problems and then retracting those problems can happen a lot more quickly, and you 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 do less damage damage to the rest of the science. Yeah, and even just uh, just to put, make that point slightly more, is you know retracted papers that still post retraction continue to build a very substantial citation record. And not a negative citation record. One, of, I'm I'm using this because I believe what was there. Yet it's been long retracted because there's just no great system for managing some of that. But again, a in my view, a better linked system where you could you know you could intervene very quickly and say, wait a second, this thing is like this thing's been retracted. So stop with the further citing. Unless of course your citations have dimensionality, which is. I'm citing this because I disagree with it and I'm going to disprove it or I have disproven it. That should count in a different way than a citation for right now, which is just very binary. I've cited it, I've cited it, I've cited it. You don't know why or what for or anything like that. So, And I think a blockchain-based system can also give us that dimensionality, which makes citations more powerful. So quick question uh, before the closing one. Are there any risks in disclosure or loss and abuse of IP pre-publication? Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, our research on with researchers suggests that's their number one. Their number one fear is loss of control of IP. That's yes, but. Uh, that's a perceived fear? Is it, is it real? Is it real world? Or is that just a perceived fear? I, I think it's real world. I, I think the perception probably outweighs the, the reality of the risk. I, I saw it firsthand with uh, my, my lab in grad school. It wasn't my work, but this was just as I was entering the lab. There was um, some work that had been cycled back and forth from a reviewer and it was a very niche area and you could almost tell which people in the field were doing the reviews by which citations were coming back on the review and it got held up for 
an, un, a, an unusual period of time and some back and forth, and then all of a sudden the lab that it was probably um, the reviewers were likely from put out very similar work. And, and quite frankly, it appeared from what I saw that they had been scooped by another group that was probably already working that path, but saw that this other group was doing it and found little problems with the with the the, the work so that they could hold that up. And so I think I think it's not an unwarranted fear whether or not it's it's definitely you know overblown. As a government research administrator, we had I mean I I, I had generals yell at me to get some research moving where the researcher was the problem. The researcher sat on the data and didn't want to um, you know give it out to others to look at because they were afraid they were going to steal it, but at the same time was moving at a snail's pace to get that stuff to publication, and that was unacceptable, and so we had, we had fun. But, but, uh, but that, that reality probably does not meet the perception. Although, from a researcher's perspective, I'd say perception is reality, in that that's going, you know, why aren't they going to share because of that? But I, I, I believe blockchain actually can help, you know, on the IP management quite significantly. Um, you know, proof of existence and timestamping. Okay, that's one thing. In my view, it's 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 helpful, but it you know it's necessary, but it's efficient um, because you really need to get to proof of authorship, proof of ownership, not just proof of existence or provenance. And and I think there are a lot of novel ways to come at that um, that exist and can be applied to research. So that leads right into the last question. Uh, do you believe that using blockchain for attribution of research can increase a probability for more scholarly published articles? Well, in, in many ways, I mean, thanks for the question. It's the core thesis of what we're trying to do um, with artifacts is use attribution as the motivating engine to get researchers to share more because they don't share, well, loss of IP, but if you can make it easy, you can make it secure, and you can make it beneficial, you know, the research we've done suggests that researchers will share more. 70% of our early survey, and in fact, the expert panel we've been working on in, in combination with blockchain and healthcare today, back this up as well, that they were, researchers would share if they could get attribution and then they would provide attribution um, to early work um, if it was available and they could find it. And, and so, you know, that being the engine that starts getting, you know, more information out, more information available, um, we, we firmly believe uh, it will be a, a big thing. And, and I think, um, you know, I, I, I agree entirely, and I think it can be done in a, a much better fashion than um, some of the shared databases are doing it right now. Um, I got to see within the federal system two shared DOD databases that were available. In one, there was challenges because it was strictly to the honor system whether or not anyone took that data and utilized it that they gave, um, you know, a, they went to one of the, the, the collectors of that data to offer them a chance to be on the analysis and on the paper first, and if that person refused, they at least gave them some acknowledgement, but that there was no way to enforce that. Whereas another one, they contracted, I think it was University of Michigan, to handle the third party processing of the data to enforce that type of rule. Um, if you can do that without having to have that third party and yet ensure that contribution is going to be you know, attributed, I think you can, you can free up the, the sharing of research. 
Good. Um, we are making terrific time, gentlemen. Are there any comments in closing you would like to leave the group with? Um, I, I, I want to say thank you because um, setting up blockchain in healthcare today was, I think, a huge leap forward for legitimizing the field, which we, we were talking about earlier. I, I had an instance where I was talking to a high-level researcher um, that I had worked with before about blockchain for probably six, nine months, and I'd get patted on the head. That's nice, Sean. You're, you know, do whatever you're doing with your technology. As soon as I mentioned that there was a peer-reviewed journal that was focused on blockchain and healthcare, it was that, what, what, wait, what, what did you say? And all of a sudden, I had more audience, and it gives you, you know, it's great to have have early adopters, but to, to really get penetration of this technology, we're going to have to have more and more people. And this legitimacy of having this journal, I think, is huge. That, thank you. Um, and, and thank you, actually, because um, that brings us completely full circle with the very first question we started with. Um, does uh, peer review um, validate or legitimize the science? And one of the reasons I launched the journal is because um, the technology is that important and that impactful in healthcare. And so now, how do we cut through all the Bitcoin and all the fake news? And um, the way we can, one way that we can do it is certainly introducing a peer review journal to the marketplace. And I think we've, we've seen the need, we've certainly identified a gap. It being read in over 65 countries now and thousands and thousands of article downloads and, and so on. So um, yeah, apparently um, we added a little bit of credibility and just a little bit of uh, validity. Um, and so we're very, very pleased to play a role because there are so many others um, active in this space as well. So thank you very, very much. Courtney, in closing, anything? I, I, well, I'd echo. I mean, I think uh, the work we've been doing with blockchain and healthcare today has been great and has, you know, allowed us to test a concept and continue to test it a bit and, you know, experiment with a new technology and see how it's going to play and see how we get researchers to share more, which ultimately you know, I think will expand knowledge instead of contract it, which I actually think the, today's scholarly communication system is more of a contractor of knowledge than an expander in a way which is a little ironic. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, progress. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we'll be seeing more with the uh, telehealth journal in the, uh, in the future, too. Yeah. So thank you both so very, very much. Audience, thank you very much. And uh, that's, that's a wrap for this one. And we'll turn it over to Rob Rabitsky, in that case, for his next panel.